0: Hello and welcome to episode number 335 of the Armin Show podcast. Like, subscribe, follow, all those things, whatever it may be, whatever platform you're checking, support the show, continue to watch more on the way. On this one here, we have the author and a very prolific individual of the book Always On Hope and Fear in the Social Smartphone Era, Rory. And can you pronounce your last name? Because I've, I've not been able to pronounce it exactly.
1: It's uh, Catelyn Jones. Don't worry, lots of people can't pronounce it. So that's spelled C-E-L-L-A-N, but it's pronounced Catelyn. It's a Welsh name. Um, So take take some getting your head around. Catelyn Jones. Great. Uh, Welcome to the show.
0: Glad to have you on here. I like your career and also the topic of your book is very prevalent in the recent time, the current time. Before we get into the book, you were at the BBC for 40 years. You have interviewed a wide variety of individuals, spoken with them, gone to locations where things are happening. When you think about this 40-year package, do you see it as a smooth progression or do you see it as times when more was happening, less was happening, changing moments? How do you look at that whole package?
1: Well, you never go into... The beginning of a 40-year career, knowing what's going to happen. I joined the BBC in 1981 in a little local regional news show as a researcher, very junior person on a six-month contract. I never expected to be there for 40 years. Uh, I had a, a fascinating career, first behind the camera as a producer and at a time in the mid-80s when there was a lot of news happening. Uh, and then in front of the camera, uh, first as a business correspondent, then Uh, as a technology correspondent for the last 15 years of my career, although I spent much longer thinking about technology. Um, And I got to see some um, uh, um, amazing things. I got to see my industry change completely radically through technology. When I started, camera crews for news were shooting on film, where I was. Uh, You had to wait for the film to be processed before you could put it together. and crews were quite big, certainly our rivals, commercial TV, sometimes had five, six, seven people. Uh, by the end of my career, people were shooting on these things, smartphones, the subject of my book, uh, and anybody could have a, sh- a studio, anybody could have their own show. Uh, whereas at the beginning, you had to be um, a wealthy media owner to have uh, to have the means to reach an audience. So that was been a radical change, and of course, I've also been reporting on the, the the way technology has changed other areas of our lives uh, throughout those years. And it's been uh, quite an amazing ride. One thing related to what you just brought up, did you notice that early
0: on that there might be people around you who also had the chops to be their own type of performers or creators or what it might be, but they were not going to get a shot at that time because they were not in line with, uh, let's say, what was happening, or they weren't uh, getting promoted up the ranks in some way. Did you notice that?
1: Well, it, it was it was the truth. I mean, people used to have always asked me throughout my career, "How do you get into television? How do you get into journalism?" Uh, and the at the at the beginning, the answer was, "You got to do maybe a bit of student journalism, and then you got to just beg and plead to get into a big organization." Now, the first thing I say is. You can you don't need permission you need It's maybe hard to get paid these days, but if you want to be a journalist if you want to be a videographer if you want to be a musician, uh, and you want to reach a wide audience. uh, You've got the tools there they're available to all that doesn't mean that you'll become famous most people will not become famous. but you've got a shot at it. It it is in some sense a democratization, although maybe we shouldn't exaggerate that. There are still very powerful media empires that uh, uh, can control a lot of what we see.
0: That's true. You have this sense at this time after the career, would you say that even before the career, you were looking at individuals who were uh, presenting themselves uh, externally to the public or looking to make a representation of themselves Did you notice that beforehand or is it something that as you progressed in your career, you started looking at other people looking to build their thing and if they were doing this right step or this one wrong?
1: I don't think most journalists think of it that way. Let's be be honest. We're all egotists. We're thinking about how can we present ourselves? Uh, How can we get ourselves uh, uh, higher up the pecking order? And for a lot of my career, just about all of my career, that is involved uh, convincing an editor that you've got the better story, you're the better teller of that story, uh, that you deserve more airtime, uh, that you deserve more resources. Uh, So you don't spend a lot of time worrying about who out there uh, needs that that help.
0: Were there any people early on that you looked at as key journalists or examples that you wanted to emulate along the way?
1: Well, all along the way, there have been great journalists uh, who uh, I've admired from afar. I mean, the, 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 the great one uh, was Harold Evans, the editor uh, in Britain of the, the times and the Sunday times uh, who wrote a fabulous book called pictures on a page, which, Showed his mastery of of layout, really, of of a newspaper, and how key key images are so important. So I admired him, and he was also a campaigning journalist, uh, and was eventually sacked by Rupert Murdoch for you know being too campaigning. I think. Um, so I admired him, but there are also a, a bunch of BBC uh, reporters uh, who I really admired and who had the the courage to to go for instance to wars which frankly well i never got the opportunity to go to wars i uh, went to a few semi-dangerous places but never that way so i admired the people who could do that and uh, who could tell a story with coherence uh martin bell was a uh, an amazing uh tv news reporter uh, from the bbc uh who eventually went into politics as a kind of neutral figure the man in the white suit but he was a, a great reporter during a number of wars including the bosnian wars and he had an amazing technique which we young reporters all marveled at he didn't write down his script he sat in an edit room uh, got the editor to pick the best pictures got all the pictures together and then basically ad-libbed almost made up his script in front of the pictures Said what was going on, which seemed to me, still seems to me, quite extraordinary. So he 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 was a genius. Um, and another BBC reporter. Sorry to bang on about BBC reporters. Uh, Alan Little, uh, who is of my generation, but it was the greatest writer. It was brilliant writer uh, uh, to pictures, which is the great skill in television news, uh, knowing how much to say and how to say it, not over describing what you're seeing, but uh, using it to, to effect. And he was an absolute genius at that.
0: The right amount for each thing. Now, you're in the technology category. You mentioned you didn't go to war so much. Uh, what about your qualities led you in that direction? Was it your desire towards technology or some abilities of yours that connect with speaking about technology? or was it opposition to other categories, which is not usually the case, but what led you in that direction?
1: Well, I was a business correspondent for many years. uh, And in the mid 90s, I think uh, there was a trip to the United States, which I think was formative, I was sent over to New York uh, in 96, I think it was 95, 96. um, to, To fill in for the business correspondent in New York, who was away for a while. And while I was there, a company called Netscape had just floated uh, on, I think it was the NASDAQ, uh, and its shares were going voom. It was the first real .dot .com. So it was the, the, the first web browser.
0: Netscape um, Navigator.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that was exciting. At the same time believe it or not i uh, while i was over there i interviewed bill gates who just got a book out called the road ahead which basically because bill gates didn't get the internet at first or microsoft didn't get the internet and this was his book saying oh we really should have got the internet and this is how important it's going to be and it was pretty accurate in many ways as it looked forward uh and he signed the book to me with a dedication to rory Good luck with computers. I suspect he did this for everybody, but um, I thought that was funny. But it was around then that we, as a family here, had got our first proper home desktop computer, uh, which was an Apple Mac Performer 630 with a 250 megabyte hard disk. And I got a modem for it. And I linked it up to the internet and the family, my five-year-old son and my wife sat around a picture animated line by line onto the screen and it felt like magic and i was hooked so from then on i wanted to do technology stories of the kind that i mean there was a new breed of technology correspondent which came along in in the 2000s which was uh not so much about jet engines and uh uh, and space but about the web uh, and its impact on culture and society and that was my interest from then on um so i i have never claimed to be hugely expert i am a bit of a a learner really i was very late to computers i i didn't use them at school or at university because they weren't really available then uh so i see my job i saw my job as interpreting what was happening with technology to a broad audience being a translator, because if I could get it, surely I could explain it to them.
0: I'm glad about the 1996, 1997 description. We also got a computer early on, I don't know, 93 or something. And it now looking back, I like your descriptions in the book because even though I thought everybody was on the internet early on, it looks like the individuals who were let's say on in the nineties at that time were the like first 0.1% of the planet to really be online. But you don't realize that when you go on there and you think, all my fellow people are on there and the fad concept that you described that a lot of people were saying, this is going to disappear. You got to see that firsthand. Have you seen that repeatedly over time that items are brought up and then they are uh, pushed aside as a potential fad. And then five years later, they are there.
1: Well, yeah. Um, I, I forget whether it's, I think it's a Bill Gates quote, uh, that we uh, tend to overestimate the impact of certain technologies in the short run and underestimate them in the long run. Uh, That is certainly true for for some technologies. Um, For others, I'm not so sure. So yeah, we obviously underestimated the impact of the web uh, and its uh, uh, potential to cause huge economic upheaval. Um, We underestimated, some people didn't, I didn't, the arrival of the iPhone as the launcher of the smartphone era. Um, I got criticized. uh, The book starts really after the prologue with uh, an account of the day that Steve Jobs unveiled the iPhone, which I I was present for, uh, which was an extraordinary event, extraordinary performance. But when I put it on the TV, on the nightly news in in Britain, there were complaints from viewers that the BBC was plugging a commercial company. Um, what on earth, why was this news? Uh, and I had to go on a complaints program and defend myself. Uh, and I kind of took my heart in my hands and said, compared it to the, the moment that Henry Ford, Ford model T, launched the model T and said, well, would the BBC, if it had been around then uh, have, have covered the, Launch of the Model T? Would that have just been a product? Uh, well, it was just a product launch, but it changed our way of life. It launched the automotive era, basically. Uh, and maybe the iPhone will be similar. Uh, and that was a, a pretty outrageous thing to say back in 2007, but I think it, was, it turned out to be true that, it, not on its own, but it, it, it fired the starting gun for the smartphone era. Uh, after which uh, the internet became a mobile phenomenon. And we've seen the economic and social impacts of that writ large.
0: I was thinking about that when you wrote it, that how valuable it is that entities like the BBC or whatnot are a level of discernment of even, let's say, products category. Most products won't make it because that's an advertisement. But of a certain threshold, this is now a public item is relevant to uh, enough people that it's no longer a company trying to get their item out there for some short-term sales and then you have to decide the relevance it's very
1: difficult to decide though you know because i've seen products or gadgets or inventions that i've been bewitched by which have come to nothing uh I, i i saw a great little company called um Oh, what was it? Something like Tweet. Not Tweet. Um, uh, It'll come to me in a moment, but it was a company that uh, enabled you to exchange data. Chirp, it was called Chirp. Uh, And it was a brilliant invention. Uh, You would attach effectively a sound to a file, say a photo. uh, And when you sent it to somebody, they would have the the Chirp app open too. And it would be sent in the form of a a kind of whistling tune. Uh, And the the photo would arrive on their phone in that way. And I thought this was rather magical. Uh, But of course, it came to nothing. They thought it might be used, for instance, at at gigs, that a a band might sort of put out a Chirp, everyone hold their phone up and a piece of merchandise or an advert or something or other, uh, a track would appear on everyone's phones magically. And that sounded fun, but it never, never took off.
0: It's like the little changes between them. It makes me think of this one company that was going to put out, like you would go to their store, you could only listen to their music if you bought the clothes and the clothes would have a tag with the music would come with. There's like combinations that are happening right now or attempts that you're not sure. Is this the one or is this going to look yeah. like comical? There's like an angle to it. That's funny. Now, I like to brought up the phone. I have a good old exciting phone over here. They're always on and we are having them on at all times and can get emails like the ones you described in the book where you get a bunch of them where it says, this gadget was so exciting or this is a new innovative product and all this. And you have to be like, what is this again? Now, individuals are checking their phone right when they're uh, waking up to the point of sleep time. What are your thoughts about the always on concept? Why did you write? the book and title it as always on
1: well there is the book by the way just a uh, quick plug um i wrote it frankly because a publisher came to me and we talked it through uh, but it seemed a good time to assess 15 years well it's now 15 years in 13 years in when i wrote it to to this era uh um, the good good side and the bad side um and the first section is about the the rapid changes, the way uh, Apple overturned the smartphone industry, the way social media combined with these smartphones to create these incredible powerful changes. The fact that we were all suddenly walking around with extremely powerful computers, uh, most of us tied to networks with like Facebook, uh uh and i was going to say twitter but twitter much on a much smaller scale with hundreds of millions of users so very powerful um and that was creating all these changes in society and that's what the first part of the book is uh, and it feels very positive to me uh, uh and then the second section is all of the the concerns the bad sides of this uh the hype the obsessive nature of the devices um the, the way that the social networks can transmit misinformation at great speed. And then there's a third part, which was written during the pandemic, which kind of brings the two things together, the good sides of the technology uh, and the negative sides, and tries to come to some conclusions and tries to be optimistic, p- particularly about something that interests me, their potential for uh, improving healthcare. the the many applications that are now coming through where smartphones uh, can help uh, in health treatment.
0: Mm -hmm. The linkage between all people that is automatic. Mm
1: -hmm. Now, as you
0: spoke with many individuals across the years, I look at people in different angles of sorts. One angle is the impact they had on you. Who are some of the technological figures who... Uh, you could either they had an impact on your what you did for many years, or you could tell that they would have an impact on many people just by the way they were speaking.
1: Well, one competes for interviews with the giants of the technology world because because you do believe that they they are incredibly impactful. So, you know, one was. Desperate to get interviews with Steve Jobs, and I got a couple of but, but really tiny, kind of like those Hollywood movie uh, junkets where you're, you're ushered in for five minutes and you get to ask two questions. So not particularly interesting, but, you know, very important to me. Um, but the, the one which uh, really comes to mind is my interview with Elon Musk, where, which I spent sort of three months negotiating to get. Uh, and only got at the last moment on a on a, a trip to ces when a phone call came through saying yes you can interview mr musk drove in a tesla from las vegas to la to his design center uh and did this interview and i had been i had told my bosses that this was the most interesting man in technology to get them to fund the trip and uh, I was a bit worried at first because he seemed quite low key, but then he really delivered an extraordinary interview, um, making great big claims about the future, for instance, of autonomous cars. He said quite early on in the interview, uh, in a few years time, owning a car that you have to drive will be like owning a horse, something that you do for sentimental reasons, not practical reasons. Uh, and then he began he used the phrase, when we are a multi-planet species. And I thought, this interview is great, it's working. But uh, I caused offense to his PR man by writing a blog about the encounter, which was titled, uh, Elon Musk, uh, Bonkers But Brilliant, um, which summed up how I saw him, because he'd made these extraordinary claims, which this was 2016, about how fast autonomy would arrive which turned out to be obviously exaggerated. Um, but I kind of admired his, his ability to think big. He was
0: reaching for something in the future, but a bit early in that way. Mm-hmm. One thing I enjoy very much in your descriptions is the things that you can only know if you actually do stuff behind the scenes about how difficult it can be challenging or time-based or how much uh, lead time there can be before an item can work and then it might not even work which is not what you see on the back end at the end result for a person viewing same thing on public videos or social media. By the time it gets to a 10 second clip or something, there was so much behind that, but then the viewer's like, Oh, cool. And then off they go. It's nice to see the background. Do you ever feel that discrepancy between the creation versus the consumption of something?
1: Oh yeah. Um, And uh, certainly in the, in the old days, Uh, where i started you know there was one big tv news bulletin each night i mean there still is uh and it had has maybe eight items on it and there are maybe a hundred reporters competing to be one of those eight items and why their piece should be on why why they first of all get commissioned to do the piece uh, and why it should make it and then you can sit there i remember doing a piece many years ago that I shot in America about a town that had gone, given everybody the internet through their TVs. This was in the year 2000. Uh, and I got back from the United States uh, having shot this piece in May. And we 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 edited it and it was due to go out and I sat at home watching. And then there was a riot at a football game and it was dropped. Um, and the piece eventually ran in... August and people pointed out that in the pictures there were blossom on the trees and it was obvious that it had been shot in the spring. It was out of date. Uh, and of course, things are different now because there's always somewhere where you can get your material out. You know, you can just stick it on YouTube if you want to. Um, so there there isn't that limitation, but you still want the place where your, your material will get viewed most widely and where the status is is highest and despite everything for a bbc journalist being on the nightly news the 10 o'clock news is the kind of the peak
0: this is true it's a nice feature to have that uh background behind you so that whenever you want to do something you're standing on a base of something that's already been built by people before you what is the actually the what is the history of the bbc how far does it go back as far as reporting
1: well we are about we are in its centenary year it was founded in 1922 uh as a radio station obviously um and it has survived incredibly i mean for the last since since the war it has been funded by what's called a license fee Um uh, uh I'm trying to work out what it is in dollars. It's probably about $230 a year that if you own a TV, you have to pay. And that, um, that system, which gives the BBC an income of about $5 billion a year, $6 billion a year, um, has always been under threat, but has magically survived. And everybody thinks it's a bad idea, but nobody can think of a better one that really, no, nobody who, uh, who values the BBC, and I obviously value the BBC, but there's general acceptance that there's huge value in the BBC for impartial news, great drama, um, great natural history programmes, uh, and frankly, for its value for Britain abroad, projecting you know soft power. N- nobody can quite think of a better way of funding it which would allow it to re- retain its key attributes its independence uh impartiality uh, and the way it offers something for everyone because that's what it's designed to do you know opera for the opera lovers soap opera for the soap opera lovers this is true
0: i like to represent that it, it's also kind of like a yeah a message to the public of We are here and we have been doing this. And if there was some other competing platform, they would have been there. If we want to look at a counterfactual, it would have been the case, but it's not the case. Somebody took charge and uh, they will represent something for a long term, which is a, that's almost, that's a hundred years. No, that's that's a hundred years basically. That's a cool thing. Now, one person that you had spoken with that slightly deviated from the others was Tim Berners-Lee, creator of some parts of what we call the internet. And you describe him a little bit differently than the others—a bit more um, networking mind or scattered.
1: How would he's you a great him? man. He's a great man, and I've interviewed him a lot of times. Now, I—I th- I think I make it a, a point as a, as a frustrated journalist that uh, so Tim Berners Lee is the man that created the World Wide Web. So that's what he's famous for. Not there's a, always confusion. Uh, he didn't create the Internet. The Internet was around in the 60s and 70s as a sort of U.S. military project. Internet, Yeah, exactly. But he created the World Wide Web, which basically is what made the Internet a popular phenomenon. Uh, up until then, it was, it was a university researchers phenomenon and a r- real specialist thing. Anyway, um, he's a great man uh, and he didn't make any money from his invention. He, he basically gave it to the world. And I tell the story of how his and my optimism, really, about this, this new era, this smartphone era, peaked in 2012 at the London Olympics opening ceremony when he was on stage and sent a message around the stadium saying, this is for everyone, a tweet, um, summing up what the kind of open nature in his view and free nature of, of internet culture. Uh, amusingly, uh, the I think the NBC commentators on the opening ceremony said, "Who is this guy?" And somebody said, "Google him." Uh, we'll have to Google him. And of course, the point is, Google wouldn't exist without his invention. Um, anyway, <laughs> the, the, I've interviewed him a lot of times. He he's quite difficult to interview for TV because he's got one of those minds that is so brilliant that it it leaps off in all sorts of directions, and halfway through, he'll suddenly go off in another direction. Uh, And then I remember this, Uh, and then I remember that. And it it always reminds me of his own creation, the web. It's as if he's continually clicking on links and going elsewhere. Good point. That's a good point. Could a non-networking mind have
0: created that kind of network? I don't think so. That's a good point. We can only do what we represent in a way. One thing you mentioned there, a tweet. Uh, made me think of there's different social networks. I've always liked uh, Twitter a bit more and text-based ones more than some of the more picture-based, maybe even a video-based platform. Have you resonated with some more than others? And what are your thoughts on, do you compare them or do you look at them as you mentioned, like techn- technological empires? How do you look at them?
1: Well, I, I got into social networking in a big way in 2007 because the radio program, big radio program, in the uk with the breakfast radio program asked me to do a piece and so i joined everything and the tech the technology community in london and i suspect probably in the united states was all on facebook in the summer of 2007 and by christmas they'd all magically moved to twitter because it seemed more um useful more more public but also more uh intimate in a kind of way we, you know the technology community the, twitter was very small in those days but everybody you knew from that technology community was on it and was exchanging ideas um and all these years on it's still my most useful social network i i am slightly obsessed with it uh although of course financially um it's failed to deliver anything like what facebook has delivered uh, it's not that powerful and it's now been overtaken as well by tiktok um i i have found it increasing whereas i joined everything uh, at an early stage um i think it was um tiktok that sort of began to make me realize just how old I was. Although I have recently been on a TikTok course. Somebody who was an expert on TikTok gave me a two-hour sort of presentation on how to do it. So I'm trying it, but um, I'm struggling. <laughs>
0: this is a great point. That is very current. I, I do go on there. I have made content on there, but you're right. The things you describe is kind of my cat, not right, but it's like our preference. I have the same uh, connection with, Twitter and especially the early period when it's more like discussion and these are the topics versus when it broadens out to everybody, suddenly pop culture infiltrates and it doesn't look, the trending doesn't look like it did early on. And I see that for any new social network, it starts out with the people who reach out and are trying and figuring out things and doers and searchers. And then later on, once it's stabilized and set up, everybody joins and then it's more, not uh, complex as much, if you will. And then yeah, that TikTok is our our current one. It doesn't have any of the text items, and it's very uh, quick based. Have you noticed the attention span change over the years, or what, what would you say about that?
1: I I think that that is interesting. Um, the 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 idea that. Uh, this modern era this smartphone era has cut our attention span i think is not one that really stands up to much examination yeah over over the period that i for instance i've worked in television the the average length of a soundbite got shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter but the other phenomenon we're seeing right now is a huge appetite for long-form content i mean look at the podcasting world there are I, I don't know how long Joe Rogan's going on for at the moment because three hours I to that that much but um yeah that is long uh, look I watched somebody recommended to me the other day a video on YouTube which was about NFTs and was tearing them down uh, this video was two hours and eighteen minutes long uh, and it was absolutely compelling it was brilliant and millions of people have watched it so. Yeah, there's an appetite for short, snappy, you know, TikTok videos, but there's also an appetite for great long stuff.
0: It's sort of like the middle maybe has dropped away and then you yeah. want something for a quick moment or you want something for, I want to be checking this for a long period of time while I'm doing multiple things in the background too, maybe. That's funny. The comparisons of sorts. I've always liked uh, Twitter because it's uh, fast paced. What do you most use Twitter for? And has there been any
1: negatives with it? I use twi- Twitter from a very early stage as a kind of news agency. Uh, and I got kudos from doing that because I, I remember one morning in about 2008, 2009, I woke up and people on Twitter were talking about an earthquake in China. Uh, and I rang my news desk and said, there's been an earthquake in China. And they said, no, there hasn't. We'd have seen it on Reuters by now. Um, but I was right, and they were wrong. Uh, t- Twitter was first with uh, with the reports of the earthquake. Uh, and was. For, I remember that great incident, that extraordinary incident, when that plane crashed on the Hudson, The miracle on the Hudson. Uh, that was a huge Twitter moment where a guy called Yanis Krums, uh posted a photo of the the aircraft floating on the Hudson with people being rescued. Um, so I was really into that at first. Uh, and colleagues used to come to me and uh, ask for my help in using Twitter, because the other way I used it was to get uh elements for my own stories um i was doing a story about battery technology one day uh and went on twitter and said who is britain's biggest expert on battery technology and a university came on and said it's professor so-and-so from bath and i drove off to this university and interviewed him and put him in my, in my piece and my other colleagues who didn't use twitter started asking me if i could ask things for them um so that was uh, incredibly useful to me in the early years and it's it's probably less useful now because everybody's on Twitter and therefore it's sort of you know it's leveled the playing field every journalist is on Twitter um, but I still find it uh, a good way of finding out what's going on and hearing news first it's very important though that you follow an incredibly wide range of people because otherwise you get that filter bubble effect that uh, you you live within you know a bubble of people like you and one thing that helped me was quite early on in 2010 I covered the UK general election as the digital election correspondent when people were just getting to grips with Twitter as as possibly playing a role and I followed every British politician that was active on Twitter so I got a broad sweep of views and I'm still sometimes I wish I wasn't but I'm still following all those people
0: this is a great point actually applicable for anybody who's checking to broaden who you are following because sometimes you get used to the people you are following that's all you know and then that can go for months yeah. and months and months and months but if you add a few people now other views are included for months and months and months and it'll have a big impact you have to do it uh, very proactively because later on you won't know and you are you just got used to your, let's say, feed in some way. Now, one thing about the UK that always comes to mind for me is I see it as a hub of sorts of research, uh, discussion, examining technology uh, worldwide. And I, last year I was in Scotland, wonderful. And even the bookstore it was very enjoyable for me because the books were even more, it seemed. It was it was a great place. Very glad to be there. And do you notice that? Do you see it as a hub of learning and knowledge? Do you see any other hubs on the planet as well?
1: Well, everybody has always wanted to be Silicon Valley, haven't they? Um, and we're 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 the same. Um, but we do we do uh, outside the United States have a pretty vibrant technology community, and particularly. Uh, uh, in Cambridge Cambridge I, I've got a lot of connections with Cambridge I studied there my wife is a professor in Cambridge, uh, and that is a place which generates lots of ideas. Uh, and some companies that sadly most of them end up getting bought by American businesses. So yeah, Britain has great ambitions to be. Uh, a player in AI. We had DeepMind, which is a great company, but which was sold far too early to Google. Um, We've now got great ambitions to be big in quantum computing. Um, So there, there is a lot of activity, a lot of research activity. Too often, it doesn't lead to great companies, or if those companies are great, they end up selling out to foreign owners, perhaps too quickly. But There's certainly plenty going on here. Yeah, and uh, a pretty tech-minded community.
0: I like it very much, the whole region. uh, I I see it as very intelligent in my view. One thing that comes to mind is your related phones and their interconnectedness to the value of it for the recent item that's kind of coming to an end, sort of, I'd call it the last two years of uh, pandemic. What are your... Thoughts on the value of phones for uh, healthcare uh, tracing of people between each other about who has uh, the virus or another one that would come up, like Bill Gates was just mentioning that uh, we'll have a new one coming up, something probably within a few
1: years, there'll be a different one. Thoughts on the value of that? Well, it's been a huge experiment, the pandemic in technology. It's been a time when digitization has leapt forward because... People have suddenly seen the need for it. When we were all locked down, for instance, um, I, I write in the book about what would it have been like if this pandemic had happened in 2005, before we were so connected, and it would have been much harder. Uh, our kids uh, being taught from home, doing remote learning, that would have been difficult. Uh, shopping from home get, was you know, very much in its infancy in 2005, very well developed here, all sorts of services, um, and just the the sense of connectivity. I'll give you one little example. Uh, we have a granddaughter, she lives, she's two or was two during the pandemic, she's just been three. Uh, and we couldn't see her for months on end, despite the fact that my son and his wife only live 10 miles away across London. So every morning we got into the habit of doing a FaceTime call. Um, and that made things just a little better. So Technology proved its worth in that way. It's interesting you talk about the contact tracing app. I devote a whole chapter of the book to that because that was a fascinating uh, example of slight tech utopianism by, certainly by politicians who thought this would be the way to solve for everything, uh, put too much faith in it, but it did actually work. So we went through this thing of saying, this is the solution and, and then no, it's rubbish, but actually behind the scenes, it did do some good in identifying or telling people that they've been in contact with the virus and to be careful. Uh, And there are papers out showing that it's, um, it probably cut deaths as a result. Uh, There's also been the negative side of the technology. It has helped the spread of uh, mad conspiracy theories. You know, the one that 5G caused COVID uh, it has spread anti-vax nonsense. It has spread all sorts of um, uh, rumors and fears and, and general nonsense and abuse. So we've seen both sides of, of the smartphone revolution during the pandemic. Right.
0: Linkage between people there, then there'll be the linkage between uh, autonomous vehicles as they speak to each other. And uh, we're going to have continuous like uh, data sent in between People, cars, machines, everything will become intelligent in that way, it looks like. One thing that comes to mind is that um, are there any qualities of people that would want to cover technology or do journalism for a long time or be uh, speakers of some sort? Do, Do you notice any certain qualities of people you have been around that have to be there?
1: Well, that's an interesting question. I think it's changing. I think people used to, there used to be a certain type that was a technology type mm-hmm. that were quite, it was like a sort of mysterious brotherhood and it nearly always was brothers, tech bros, you call them, uh, who would speak in a kind of impenetrable language um, and, and s- uh, get almost points, get kudos for being incomprehensible. And I think that's changing. Um, people now want to communicate they want to reach a wider audience they're they're aware that you need as well as an understanding of the technology uh a way of communicating that uh in an accessible way of being uh attractive and sometimes that can be you know can go too far and become clickbaity and you know irresponsible but in the best examples it's just you know somebody who's a good journalist but who can also tell a good story in
0: bringing the book in full swing what is one thing you would want people to take away from the book moving forward that they might not have thought about smartphones or this current era
1: i think to to understand uh Both the attractions and the dangers of the technology, to understand the power of the organizations which control that technology, which of course are all focused right where you are on the west coast of the United States. You are on the west coast, aren't you? Yes, Los
0: Angeles. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, you're so it's quite sobering for those of us who are not there to realize, you know, when you think of Apple, Google, Facebook. Twitter, Microsoft, just a little bit further to the north, um, Netflix and so on, all of those powers resident in one part of the earth and having or wanting to have huge influence on the rest of the earth. Uh, I think that's worth thinking about. But I would also like to be quite positive about this technology because. I think it can be incredibly enriching, uh, incredibly creative, uh, if we allow it to be incredibly democratizing. So I would like people to embrace the positives of the technology, experiment with it, uh, realize that, you know, TikToks are for making, not just for watching, Um, uh, while being aware of, you know, the the sheer concentration of power uh controlling that technology a great
0: point i like that you brought up the creation of items as well because consumption is any have you ever thought about that that anybody can be in the audience but you can't replace the person on the stage so maybe there is some relevance to being on the stage at times or else we could just be replaced by somebody else that kind of concept
1: (laughs) well yeah i mean celebrities have not gone away you know fame has not gone away uh, and uh, not everybody does get their 15 minutes of fame uh, uh, most people don't the vast majority of people don't um but they can all have 15 minutes of fun if, if not fame another point
0: rory i would like to thank you for having joined on this episode of the show describing and detailing some elements from your book always on and giving us some sense of what it's like of uh, having a prolific career with many tech individuals and others where you are contributing to the BBC and the worldwide um, descriptions of what's happening.
1: Thank you very much. It's been a lot of fun. And just one more plug for the book. (laughs) That is the book right there. Wonderful one. Glad to have you on.
0: And we are out.